This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevec. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Bloomberg Radio. Or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News. Well, the big news when it comes to the spread of the Delta variant and the latest with COVID is, of course, the United States today announcing that it's expanding boosters to all American adults, this to head off the Delta variant. We have with us now Dr. William Hazeltine, chairman and president of Access Health International, also the author of CV, PTSD, COVID-related post-traumatic stress disorder, what it is and what to do about it. He joins us now on the phone from Connecticut. Dr. Hazeltine was with us back in May, and he actually brought up the topic of booster shots. Take a listen to what he had to tell us just a few months ago. Today, this morning, we got the first shoe that dropped. And that is that one of the best of all the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, doesn't protect against two of the common variants after about six months very well. Wow. Uh, at least as judged by the ability of the antibodies in people who are vaccinated to neutralize the virus. That's different from a real vaccine test in showing that it's failing to protect people in real uh, life. But it's a pretty good indication that it's not going to protect people for very much longer. So the the net result is also quite positive. In the very same report, it said, if you get a booster at six months, you're golden again. Hmm. You're maybe better off than you were before. So what I've done is I put in my calendar, six months from when I got my last shot, I'm going to get another. You put in your calendar, Dr. Hazeltine, six months from when you got your last shot, you're going to have another do you want? Do you stand by what you said a few months ago about the durability of the Moderna vaccine? Well, you know, it's not just Moderna vaccines; it's all vaccines. The two best vaccines, of course, are Pfizer and Moderna. And we just today have some uh, pretty sad news from Israel that not only are the vac- are the rates of infection rising very, very sharply, but um, about sixty percent of the people who ended up in the hospital are fully vaccinated. So not only is it not protecting from infection and transmission, it's not protecting from serious disease in many cases. That's that's Delta really concerning data from infection. that's really concerning data from Israel because the data that we're seeing here in the United States is eighty five to ninety percent of those who are in the hospital haven't been vaccinated. Why do you see the, think you see the discrepancy? And also we should we should we should we say that not all studies not all studies are created equal. Uh, you know, we have to take all of this data with a grain of salt. No, we don't. Why not? This is really good hard data. And um, it's looking like, and there's a new study out that says, your degree of protection is a function of how long time has lapsed since your last vaccination. So there's about a tenfold difference in hospitalization based on the time that has elapsed since your last vaccination. I think it's very clear now, and that's why the government has moved the way it is. It's very clear now that to protect against serious illness, where most people are going to need a booster. They've pegged that at about eight months. It's probably about right for most people. For people who are older, it's probably a little shorter than that. Six months will do. Uh, And so I would stand by my statement that six months from my last vaccine, I'm certainly planning to get another booster. And and I think the government's official recommendation now is every adult 
uh, get a booster beginning eight months from the last uh, vaccination. Dr. Hazeltine, you know, this, is, this isn't magic. This is kind of like the flu. I mean, right. this isn't new to us. We think every year we have to get a new flu, flu vaccine. I don't know what's so special about this, why people are so surprised. Yeah, and every few years we do have to get boosters for, for other vaccines as well. I mean, I, I, sure. we certainly have yeah. to do that. Uh, I, I think perhaps the, the question that people would have about this is, is it specifically related to the Delta variant or is it the durability of the vaccine declines regardless of whether or not we're being hit with new variants? Uh, you know, that's a good question. The answer is yes to both. Huh. Uh, Delta is better at evading the vaccines, but as time goes on, the vaccines will wane in effectiveness against all variants, even the original ones. So that's to be expected. You know, if you go back and look at what I was writing a year ago, I was predicting that any vaccine that would be developed would be of relatively short duration. That's because we have a lot of experience with viruses like this, particularly the flu. I think the more people start thinking about this as a very dangerous virus like the flu, much more like the flu than anything else, the better off we'll be. Something that has to be observed will come back every year, maybe twice a year. The odd thing about this one is coming back in the United States in the summer and the winter. And so it's a little different in that respect. It's more lethal. So we've got to be more careful, but we've probably got to keep up with our vaccines every six months to every year. That's not terrible, but it's not it's not the best news, but it's not the worst either. Is it fair the for the United news, States? Is it fair for the United States, Dr. Hazeltine? a lot more protection than you had before. Is it fair for the United States to... Uh, encourage booster shots when the vast majority of the world has not yet even had access to these vaccines? You know, it's our country's responsibility to take care of people in our country first. That is what the government's job is, to take care of us. Saying, having said that, we should do everything in our possible, in our, that is possible to make sure that others in the world also have the advantages that we have. It's unfortunate that many areas of the world have neglected their own vaccine programs, and they're now paying the piper. Yes, we should help, but not at the expense of our own citizens. Well, let's get right back to Dr. William Hazeltine, chairman and president of Access Health International, also the author of many books, his latest, CVPTSD, COVID-related post-traumatic stress disorder, what it is and what to do about it. Dr. Hazeltine, uh, before we get to the book, I, I want to talk a little bit about vaccine availability. Here in the United States, vaccines are still only approved under emergency use authorization for people older, over the age of 12. How do we get past this pandemic, especially as kids go back to school when millions of children cannot be vaccinated? We start vaccinating our children as soon as possible. How soon can and that I be? I think that's going to. I think that uh, once the results are in, I'm pretty confident that this vaccine will be safe for children. But until you've done the studies, you don't know. I know our government is working as fast as possible to get those studies done. I hope it's done. Let's say by Thanksgiving. I would certainly hope so. You think that uh, it's realistic to think that we could get approval, emergency use approval by then, authorization? Yes. Okay. Yes, and I think by that time we'll have. Um, actual approval for the uh, Moderna and the uh, Pfizer vaccines. We'll have a real approval, not just emergency use authorization. Do you think that we'll have uh, approval for or emergency use authorization for 12 to ages zero to 12, or does it start with like well, five to 12? I don't know when it's zero, or... but it's maybe three or two to, to uh, 12, yes. Okay. I think that's what we're heading for. I know that people are working as hard as they can to get that data. So they can, uh, if possible, if it proves to be safe, 
uh, to go ahead and do it. And uh, my guess is it looks like it will be safe. Well, look, it has been a tough year for many, many people, not just specifically because of COVID, if they got it or even if they didn't get it, perhaps they've suffered from what you describe as uh, CVPTSD. You write that it encompasses the full effects of all that we've endured over the past year and a half, manifested daily in rising rates of depression, anxiety, and drug addiction, and the ongoing loss of uh, academic opportunities for the young. I wonder how we get past this if you say that COVID is going to be endemic like the flu. How do we get past PT, uh, COVID PTSD? Well, the first thing, we have to recognize that it exists, both for individuals and actually for the whole society. Uh, in addition to the normal stresses that we undergo, this has been a, a tremendous economic stress. It's been a stress of fear of getting the disease. There's been a lot of conflicting messages, uh, both uh, official conflicting messages and unofficial conflicting messages. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's like the perfect storm for creating stress and anxiety. And if you look at the numbers of people who report uh, anxiety, it's uh, close to 50%. People who uh, report uh, uh, depression, much, much higher. A lot of young people are feeling especially stressed. Now, what can you do about it? As I say, the first thing is to recognize it. You know, we didn't recognize combat post-traumatic stress disorder until 1980. We called it shell shock or malingering. We had all sorts of names for it. Once we had a name for it and we recognized what it was, we began to develop treatments. And there's a very well-developed treatment program uh, and paradigm for post-traumatic stress disorder. The Veterans Administration uses it all the time. And it involves counseling, recognition of what's happened. And then uh, there's sometimes uh, some drugs that help. But you know, I would say for what's happening now, Let's take just schools, for example. All the kids are going back to schools. The teachers are stressed, and they're going to be dealing with a lot of stressed children. I think we have to support our teachers and our children with additional social work and psychiatric social work in our schools, because that's where we're going to see it first. Uh, as the children go back to school, they're going to be learning problems. There'll be behavioral problems. Uh, they can manifest themselves as uh, people who are totally withdrawn or totally unruly. You get both extremes uh, as a result of this, and we're going to have to recognize it. As more and more people get back to work, I think many big businesses are going to have to help their employees with uh, special counseling. And it's, it's going to be really important to do that to get over this, both as an individual and as a society. We've seen that start to happen in some instances, but in, in most of those cases, it's the companies that white-collar employees work for with already have great benefits. Dr. Hazeltine, Chairman and President of Access Health International, also the author of CVPTSD, COVID-Related Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, What It Is and What to Do About It. It is always great when you join us. Thank you so much for taking the time. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes' Tim Stenovic. On Bloomberg Radio. 100 hour work weeks, working on the weekends, sleepless weeks, burnout, and of course, that PowerPoint slide deck from a group of 13 first year analysts at Goldman Sachs. 
That detailed the rigors of Wall Street life. It's the cover story of the upcoming issue of Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. You can read the story now on Bloomberg and on Bloomberg.com. And of course, Bloomberg.com slash Businessweek. It's written by Sri Natarajan, finance reporter for Bloomberg News. He joins me in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Sri is the answer to this burnout, the rigors of first-year junior bankers, $120,000 salaries? Well, let's go back to the start of the year when this really became an issue. It was the leaked presentation out of Goldman Sachs where 13 first-year analysts put together this report that detailed the rigors of their work life, the 100-hour weeks, um, endless uh, days just working on boring presentations and slide decks again and again and again, and always trying to respond to the demands of the clients irrespective of the time of the day. They outlined a bunch of changes, including you know protected weekends, uh, lesser, lesser hours in a day. Not once did they mention anything about pay. The main mm-hmm. complaint at the start of the year wasn't less pay. However, that seems to be the solution that everyone's gravitated towards and crowded around because that's the easiest thing to change. You're in an industry where the banks are always trying to please the client. The client comes up with an idea and wants something at breakfast. You want to make sure that they get a glittering slide deck by lunch. When it is a race to bottom like that, it is very hard to change the fundamentals of their work structure. So the best option that they have at their disposal is a lot of money lying around. Throw it in their direction and hope that they don't complain anymore. And as you point out in your piece, Shree, it's basically a rounding error for these companies as far as salaries go. I want to go. I want to bring in Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us now on the remote from Massachusetts. Joel, as I was reading this piece and, and hearing from veterans in the industry, some big names who were quoted in here, I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, isn't this just part of the life that people signed up for? This is how history majors indeed become billion-dollar dealmakers. Well, and that's been w- one way that the you know the the industry has has thrived, right? It's sort of this gauntlet that junior bankers go through, and yeah, you're 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 well compensated, but you know your life sucks for a couple of years, and then you get on the other side, but you know all the ropes, and and this is kind of a rite of passage. And um, yeah, there are some big names in this story: John Mack, Lloyd Blankfein. That that Sri, you know, like Sri does, he just calls up whoever he wants and, and gets great quotes from them. <laughs> uh, and and you know, I think that one of the sentiments there was just like, boy, times have changed. Like there was a moment in time in investment banking not so long ago um, where this was viewed as something that you just you know you stomached and did and got to the other side and and you know you were thankful that you got paid at all. Um, and so I think it does speak to sort of uh, this generation, but it, you know it's bigger than that because these are really smart kids, and they could have you know their choice of jobs. And I think what Sri points out in the story is that you know don't forget, like you can go work in tech and get paid as much as this. You can launch your own business, and there's more glory and satisfaction potentially in that. So yeah, there's a lot of things these people could be doing that's not working on Wall Street and. And Wall Street, you know, when, when Wall Street's got a problem, it, it does what Wall Street does, which is, you know, throw money at it. I think that's extremely important what Joel mentioned right there. The big, big, big difference. Yes, you know, the, the perception has been you know what you're signing up for. You know this is what your life is going to be. But what is the difference between the Wall Street of 2021 and the Wall Street of 1991? 
1991, there was no tech industry. There was no real internet to speak of. There was of. no Facebook or Amazon looking no for Facebook, that talent. Amazon, Google, so no established big name tech players looking for that talent. No, no potential for great uh, startups that were relying on the internet to suddenly become these multi-billion dollar companies. So if you are the most talented of your graduating class, you would waltz into a job into banking because you knew that after a few years of struggle, it was a lifestyle of corporate jet setting and lavish paydays. It's not the only game in town anymore. When you are the best and everyone's falling over each other to get a hold of you, you have a bunch of options and finance necessarily isn't the number one choice for you. And that is why the banks have to do everything in their ability to make sure that talent still comes towards the way and not just talent, the top talent. Okay, so so there's top talent and you got to speak to obviously the, the Max of the Blink Finds of the world. Uh, can you tell us about the, the other guy that you talked to? Yeah, I mean, and again, if you read this story, there is you get the view from the top. You get you get the, the two latest former CEOs of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, arguably the two most important investment banking franchises out there. But we also spoke to a junior banker uh, who worked at Goldman Sachs until the summer of last year and left. What did he do to cope with the strains? Put on his headset, blasted fake rain noise, went into a bathroom stall in the 32nd floor of 200 West Street, the global headquarters of Goldman Sachs, and took power naps in there. These were stories we read in the Michael Lewis book, Liar's Poker, from years and years and years ago. And yet that is still very much the reality. And he pointed out, look, there's a lot of ne negative repercussions to it. He wishes there were other changes that people would propose. But because those changes are not easy, you see the pay solution as the one that everyone feels comfortable with, even though they're making all the right noises about work-life balance and being more understanding. Reality doesn't necessarily reflect that. Well, the proof is, is in the pudding. It's in the data. It's in the numbers. When do the banks expect to start seeing results from whether or not these higher salaries are, are actually working? Because as you mentioned, this group of, of 13 young bankers, they didn't mention higher salaries as one thing that would help alleviate some of this pressure. I would argue that the higher salaries are a result of the fact that you are in this golden era of investment banking where the banks are absolutely bathed in billions of dollars of extra profit. So you have enough money lying around to be able to raise the base pay for a lot of these people and even make sure that they have great bonus payouts at the end of the year, which at times could be about as much as your base pay. So that's the part of the exercise that they're undertaking to make sure there isn't a lot of complaining. They don't want the other people who are getting into their first, second, and third year in colleges and starting to think about their career to say, wait a minute, I don't want to get into finance because it seems to be filled with these horror stories. And that's why they're trying to figure out whether money could be a solution on that front. Can you explain, Tree, how uh, you're attracting and retaining talent has to do with the sort of salary war, the wage war, you know, where one firm comes out and says 90,000, the next one says 100, one says 110. How high does it go? It could go as high as, as the market demands. At the start of the year, you know, there was a wonderful story in the FT a few months ago where they quoted a Goldman Sachs executive as saying that they don't want to be caught to the demands of the mercenaries. They felt that $85,000 is a great starting price because then it's going to be padded by another fifty, sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000 in bonuses. And if you're a 21, 22-year-old, 
right out of college and going to be paid that much, what right. could you possibly be complaining about? Uh, maybe not sleeping. Who knows? Uh, Srinatarajan is finance reporter at Bloomberg News, joining me in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio. Check out this story. Wall Street brings out the money cannon to lure junior bankers. It's available now at Bloomberg.com and on Bloomberg.com slash businessweek. It is the cover story. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. It's Bloomberg Business Week. Tim Stenovic and Carol Masser live in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday, August 18th. Well, we've covered a lot on Bloomberg News and, of course, on this show, Bloomberg Business Week Radio, the crackdown. On Chinese tech companies, whether it has to do with tech companies, whether it has to do with online education companies, whether it has to do with companies that are listed on U.S. exchanges. And as a result, we have seen in the last few months, uh, company share prices continue to decline. Once high flyers are now trading at a fraction of what they used to trade at. Joining us now is Katie Greifeld. She's a reporter for Bloomberg News. She's also my co-anchor on a Bloomberg Quick Takes stock. It airs each day at noon Eastern time. Also with us is Isabella Weber, assistant professor of economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's also the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, the Market Reform Debate. Katie, you have a new article out on Bloomberg saying that China dip buyers finally reached the breaking point after a 56% loss. Take us into it. Took them long enough. <laughs> it did. Well, they kept trying. I mean, if you look at this ETF, it's uh, the ticker is KWeb. It's the Crane Shares CSI, China Internet Fund. So $2.2 billion have come into this ETF just in the past two months alone, which is 98% more than uh, all other ETFs. But we're finally starting to see outflows because they have just been crushed. It has not worked. This fund has fallen 41% year to date. And uh, it's really the feels like one of the only markets where dip buying hasn't worked. That's been sort of a defining feature of American equities uh, for much of this year, really, but not so much in Chinese tech. Well, and so it is interesting to see finally, like the markets catching up. How much of it, from what you, the conversations you're having, has to do with all the policies that President Xi is imposing at this point? It it has to do squarely with that, I would say. I think the hope, if you rewind back to really the beginning of July, was maybe we've seen the worst of it. Maybe we've seen the worst of this crackdown. But really now it feels like anything could be targeted. It's so wide-ranging. It's unclear what's going to come next. And the losses have already been so great at this point that it's hard to stick around and keep trying. Let's bring in Isabella Weber, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, also the author of How China Escaped Shock Therapy, the Market Reform Debate. Professor Weber, it's great to have you back on the show. How much further could uh, Xi Jinping go? Is this just the beginning? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I mean, I'm someone who has worked on this historically, so I think it's worth taking a step back and asking ourselves what kind of underpinning logic we see here. And I think we see a logic where the government has its own goals that are beyond market valuation, that are goals that um, that, that, that are quite pronounced at this stage. I think two of the clearly articulated goals that we have been seeing um, being invoked in this context again and again is the idea of common prosperity guidelines, which is a move away from the idea of let some get rich first to let's change this and uh, move towards common prosperity. So if you take the example of the education sector, initially private tutoring was a relatively minor thing, then it became so important that um, certain parts of the population couldn't keep up with education because of how important private expensive tutoring became. And now we have this massive I think the second um, dimension that has been invoked again and again is the idea of disorderly capital expansion and the idea that 
antitrust and anti-monopoly measures are necessary, basically, in an attempt of the state to rebalance its relationship um, with um, massive private companies that have amount, uh, great amounts of, of, of power at that point in key sectors. Isabella, how much of this is about making sure that President Xi stays in power, the, power, the party stays in power, and keeps everybody happy, that there aren't uprisings, that there aren't riots? How much of it is about that? Or how much of it is about really creating a new China, a real developed economy in the like of maybe the German model in terms of how it approaches, quote unquote, capitalism? Yeah, um, I mean, this whole idea of the German model has been floating around quite uh, in a quite viral fashion on the Chinese Internet. I, you, you might hear my German accent, so let me take this opportunity to comment on this. I think that the whole idea of antitrust standard setting, um, having a, a, an economy that is oriented towards key um, key sectors such as technologically intensive sectors and so on. It's certainly, um, in, in, to some extent, in parallel with the German model. But at the same time, I think it is absurd to um, think of, the chi- of, of China in, in its entirety as um, representing the German model. I think China has been um, rearranging its state market relationships in such complex ways over the last decades that we really have to understand it in its own terms. And this involves, of course, um, an important role of the state in the economy right. in an attempt to stabilize that. But at the same time, we also see a reshifting of the economic um, model. So the whole idea of common prosperity guidelines is, of course, related to the reshifting to a more domestic demand-driven economy. The idea right. of disorderly capitalist expansion is related um, to the idea of less um, reliance on possibly um, volatile capital flows. Katie Greifeld, help us contextualize this, and particularly how the route on Chinese tech companies compares to what we've seen in the NASDAQ, for example, or uh, U.S. tech stocks. Yeah, you've really seen this huge gap open up because if you look at the Qs, the QQQ ETF, which tracks the NASDAQ 100 and the tech stocks in it, it's almost up almost 17% year to date. Mm. Whereas, again, KWeb, if you look at it, it's down 41%. What's interesting is that this is a real reversal from what we were seeing at the beginning of the year. Up until really mid-February, you were seeing Chinese tech that sector there really pull ahead, really leave American tech firms in the dust. But obviously now you have what, a 56 percentage point gap open up between those two indexes. So it's really been amazing to watch this just reversal of fortunes. Isabella, just got about 40 seconds here, 45 seconds. I think about our audience. It's an investment audience. How do they need to be thinking about China? Uh, Some investors obviously pulling back. We're hearing Katie talk about it. Others say that they are still committed to the Chinese market. So in about 30, 35 seconds, how do we need to think about it as investors? Well, I'm an academic, not an investor. No, no, no. But but will more changes continue? Will they be? Will China be embracing more capitalism? Yeah, that there is a a five-year plan um, that that just is being discussed around the 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 strengthening of of state control over certain sectors. We have been seeing talk about the healthcare sector and so on. So I think this this whole um, reshifting is is certainly not over. What that will mean in, 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 in precise terms, which sectors will be. Um, evolving in, in which way it really remains to be seen. But I think this major move that we have been observing will, will be with us. We love academics. We do. You guys have a historical perspective that really, I think, helps us. Uh, and we love Katie Greifeld on anything. She can do no wrong. All right, Isabella Weber, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, author of How China Escape Shock Therapy, The Market Reform Debate, and, of course, your co-host on Quick Take, Katie she Greifeld, is. and so much more. Noon Eastern Time. <laughs> 
This is just fantastic to hear. Uh, you know, we don't get many. Like, tourism is True. down so much. Yeah. And the image that's being portrayed about New York is so different than what we experience every day. So that's really nice to hear, Doug. Oh, absolutely. It's fun to be here. Thank you. So let's talk about the Fed meeting, uh, the Fed minutes that we saw earlier today. I mean, what really sticks out to me is this caveat about the ongoing uh, removing monetary stimulus, right? The, 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 the caveat of the Delta variant, because this meeting was July 27th and 28th. And think about where we are now on August 18th. The Delta variant is much right. more of a concern than it was just a few weeks ago. Yeah, and I think the market is probably pricing in and in, in not inappropriate, mildly negative reaction to the minutes. And I, I'm sure you've had guests that use this snappy line throughout the day, but right, tapering is not tightening. And I think their action at best, right, as they've laid it out, conservatively is equal and opposite to the underlying strength we've seen in the economy, the job market, and maybe most of all the housing market then I think then there has to be a great deal of latitude or, or wiggle room in the language. It's appropriate given this COVID curveball. And, 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 and let's not also dismiss the fact that the Fed, in particularly the Fed chair, needs to attempt to really thread the needle on his communique if he is to appeal to both parties in consideration of a reappointment process mm. that is only six months away at this point in time. So stocks are pulling back a bit, but, but if you look at the bond market and, and currency market, bonds and, and the dollar are barely budging. Exactly. And so is that what you watch more, much more closely, what's going on in the currency market, what's going on in the treasury market, to really get an indication, Doug, of what might come next in terms of Fed policy? Yeah, you, you tend to think of both fixed income and currency markets as a little more cold-hearted calculating, right. and, and stocks is more like temperamental children that <laughs> are difficult to sort of uh, gauge their sort of long-term contribution based on their short-term behavior. Um, but I think, it, it, if anything, right, the Fed should be given credit for being pretty prescient in using that transitory term, given the rally in fixed income that we've seen from February through today. Right. I mean, when the Fed was saying this is a transitory issue, we may not see the perpetuation of growth rates at these levels. We may see a hiccup in the job market. We aren't entirely sure of the adverse consequences of COVID. 
And we've seen this massive bond market rally, right? 172 mm-hmm. to the 10s to 127 a day after it hit 117. So I think the Fed has earned a little credibility in currency and fixed income markets for sure. So what are you watching for uh, to, to hear from the Fed when we hear from Jackson, when we hear from Jay Powell, or I shouldn't say the Fed, but when we hear from Jay Powell next week in Jackson Hall? Yeah, I think just more of the same, Tim. You made a very good point as much as this data is already stale. So the rear view mirror-esque element of not really understanding where we are in kind of the COVID cycle at this point in time, you know, I think it's interesting because we see numbers that would lead us to believe that we're peaking. We know that a lot of sadly, the fatality numbers are lagging. Uh, we've actually seen elevation of vaccines. We've seen clearance now for the booster. There's a lot of new data on the table. And you know, I hate to say that, that, that we become accustomed to being confused, but I can't imagine that, that the, the description of where we are is going to be much less ambiguous than it was in these minutes. What's interesting, too, though, Doug, is, yes, um, from two weeks ago, three weeks ago, from four weeks ago, I think there wasn't a lot of market anticipation that the Delta variant was going to be this troubling. But now yeah. we've seen a rollback of people going in terms of offices. We are back wearing masks in our office at this point. Um, but what's interesting is, and there was a guest, uh, Alicia uh, Levine at BNY Mellon earlier on Bloomberg TV with Jonathan Farrow and said, you know, the new risk in the marketplace basically is, is this variable that wasn't so much on our radar a few months ago. It's now front and center. Um, but she's asking, you know, is there a way out of this, meaning the Delta variant? And there is. It's called the booster shot. And how, you know, important is it that if we all start to get boosters and there's confidence back, do things start to look more like they have been in the last couple of months versus how they looked a year ago? Yeah, I mean, the, the big question, right, it's kind of like the swing voter uh, conundrum in a presidential election. Like, are we going to get any COVID vaccine convertees? They're going to say, okay, now I understand I'm going to get them. I'm going to get the booster. Now, thankfully, as you guys know, the disproportionate number of infections are those that have not been vaccinated. Right. Certainly those that are the intensity are, are those that have not been vaccinated. So the breakthrough is certainly troubling. I think hopefully what the booster does is it's a shot in the arm, huge pun intended, for confidence to resume activity because there are going to be more variants. Right, so we've already started to scratch the surface of what the Lambda is. And frankly, I think people have COVID fatigue to a certain respect. And in my comments earlier about New York City, I mean, it's, it is very vibrant, right? So mm-hmm. there are more masks than I'm sure we would have seen if I were here three or four weeks ago. But I think people have kind of resolved themselves to the fact that this is something we're going to have to deal with. There doesn't seem any 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 um, in, in, uh, anecdotal reduction in a very small spot sample size where I am spending my time in Kansas City and certainly not on the ground in Kansas City or I'm sorry New York City had been in Boston the week before and there's a lot of underlying activity and still a lot of pent up consumer demand that I think is manifesting itself. Okay, just to play devil's advocate, we you know we're getting to back to school season. There are no shots available for kids under 12 years old right now. This week in New York City, you have to show starting on Monday, you had to show proof of vaccination to eat at restaurants. Does this hit consumer spending? Uh, I, I don't know that it that it hits it Kim, as much as it modifies it. So yes, but right. I mean, I think what we've also become accustomed to is that reliance upon the gig economy. And it is kind of interesting to look today and see some of the stocks that are higher in kind of a generally negative tape. And I think we know that we may have overcorrected for some of those stocks that we relied upon to get us out of the depths of the pandemic that were kind of a little bit forgotten about. That now knock on people's forefront of their mind of balancing between full engagement and one foot back into where we were before in somewhat of a lockdown fashion. All right. Having said all of this, I bet you're just kind of hoping for a little bit of a pullback so you can have a lower entry point at this point, certainly for, for some equities. 
Oh, there's no question. You know, it, I think we are like everyone. Like we're we're we're, we're assuming we're going to get a decent pullback. We haven't had a five percent correction in almost a year. I will point out something that's really fascinating, right? So far for the year, the biggest drawdown has been just a little over 4%. Mm-hmm. As we know, going back to 1980, we'd expect in any calendar year about minus 14%. The average stock of the S&P 500 has actually had a little over a 14% drop in 2021. just hasn't been coordinated during kind of a general risk-off event. Right. So we found pockets. So that's yeah. one of the reasons I think the market doesn't get that full catharsis because there's too much money that's waiting to hit it. All right. Well, have to show stay safe, uh, Doug Sioka, and have fun while you're in New York City. It is an amazing city, and it does feel pretty good right now. Doug Sioka, he's CEO and partner at Kavar Capital Partners, with us on the phone in New York City today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. And you can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube. Search Bloomberg Global News.